our series called Unstoppable Church. And throughout this series, we've been saying that people get nervous for God. Uh, they see some of the challenges that are facing the church today, and they're worried about whether he's up for the task, whether they're up for the task. And so we've been going back to uh, the early church, looking through the book of Acts at some of the the obstacles and the challenges that were put in front of the people of God and how God by his spirit powerfully overcame them and pressed the church forward in the midst of uh, great difficulty. Now today we're talking about how to cope when the world opposes the church. Uh, some of you may have, uh, have heard a couple weeks ago uh, how Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov got in some hot water. He came under fire. Uh, his coach was asked why he hadn't been taken out of the lineup. Uh, he uh, uh, was on the receiving end of a commentator who broke down in tears on air, witnessing uh, in response to what Provorov had done. He was so overcome with uh, emotion at, at, the, uh, at the act. An NHL analyst suggested that he get on a plane back to Russia and maybe get involved in the conflict there if he feels more comfortable. And there was a furor around those comments, and, and, but obviously a lot of emotion. What could he possibly have done to, to have provoked that kind of response from people? Had he uh, abused one of the staff? Had he bullied one of his teammates? Uh, had there been uh, instances of, of harassment or, or some violence that needed to be addressed? No, in fact, Ivan Provorov's uh, crime in this case was failing to uh, put rainbow-colored uh, tape on his hockey stick and don a pride-themed jersey for the pregame warm-up. When he was asked about it in his defense, he just said, I respect everybody. I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and to my religion. Now, sooner or later, I believe over uh, any number of uh, convictions that we have regarding Jesus Christ and his word, sooner or later, we will all have an Ivan Provorov moment. The question is, how will you respond? If gently and respectfully saying, I'm going to be true to myself and to my religion is enough to land you in hot water and in the midst of a national controversy, then chances are before too long, you and I will find ourselves in a similar position. We need to understand how do you live in that kind of world? How do you respond as God would have you respond? And uh, it is a message that not only we need to hear, our children need to hear, uh, we need to figure out how am I going to cope with that kind of life. Uh, to help us, we're going to turn uh, to uh, a passage dealing with uh, the church's first martyr and conf confront three myths that we need to unbelieve while living at a time when the world opposes the church. If you have your Bible, I want to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6, and I'll be reading from verses 8 to 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, in the black, there's a black church Bible on the rack in the seat in front of you, and it's on page 860. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of God. Now, before we look at Stephen's opposition, we need to deal with his character. And it helps us to deal with the first myth, which is, if I start at the bottom, I'll stay there. Uh, we live in a world where uh, we are told to fake it till you make it and don't do anything that's beneath you. But God's kingdom values are upside down from our world. And uh, if I start at the bottom, I'll stay there is a myth that we all need to address. And particularly if we are living in a world where the, the, the world opposes the church, uh, this call to humility is going to be all that much more important. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that the church was facing an internal crisis. The apostles recognized that there were some widows in, in uh, the church in Jerusalem who were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And they wanted to respond to that need, but they couldn't do so without at the same time sacrificing their ministry of the word. And so what they did was set apart seven, uh, seven people and they released them to that task and commissioned them to that ministry. When you read that, you expect that the next passage is going to be talking about some uh, important exploits of the apostles. Now that they have been freed up from this problem, we're expecting the apostles to go on and do some uh, great ministry in the word and to uh, expand on the preaching of the gospel. Or we expect that Stephen and the seven are going to be at uh, the table ministering to the widows. One of those two things would be uh, completely understandable after what we had just read last week. Instead, we see something completely different. Verse 8 says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Kind of looks like he's doing what the apostles were doing. In fact, Stephen is the first non-apostle in the book of Acts who is described as doing wonders and signs. Uh, not only that, he, he, his ministry is hard to distinguish from the apostles. In verse 9, we get a list of Greek-speaking synagogues. Uh, in and around Jerusalem, uh, you would have these, uh, uh, in, in very much the same way that in Canada we would have uh, ethnic congregations where they would have worship in people's local languages. Here, you would have Greek-speaking congregations, and they were um, particularly catered to people who were returning from other parts of the Roman Empire, returning to Jerusalem, and wanted to uh, worship in, in a language, in a style that they were familiar with. And, and so you had these, these, these synagogues around Jerusalem. Well, it appears 
Stephen, being a Greek-speaking Jew, has circulated to all of these synagogues and powerfully and persuasively in the midst, presumably, of some of his uh, uh, serving widow ministries has, has managed to proclaim the gospel in all of them and he's being, be, beginning to be seen as a threat. So he's obviously a gifted speaker and evangelist. Verse 10 says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. My question is, what on earth was he doing accepting that table ministry? What, what on earth was he doing with someone this gifted as a, a, a proclaimer of the gospel, as a, a teacher, as someone who had obviously uh, the, the power and seemingly the, many of the same gifts of the apostles, what was he doing jumping into just a few verses earlier last week a ministry where he was serving tables and bringing food to widows. At first, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Shouldn't he have turned down that ministry and focused on his teaching? Wasn't he above such labor-intensive ministry? You can see many people who in a different, uh, maybe in a different setting or in a different mindset would, would have kind of heard that uh, ministry need and would have said, I'm, I'm kind of more like the, I'm, I'm more apostle-ish. I'm not really into like widows type ministry. That's really not my thing. You could see many people who would have said, you know, I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of destined for greatness. I, I don't think I should be kind of, you know, getting messed up. I, I kind of want to join the apostles in that uh, they kind of got this special prayer meeting. And I kind of want to be a part of that. And this waiting on tables, that just doesn't seem like my thing. You could see many people responding that way, not in God's kingdom. Jesus, his ministry was the way up is the way down. That humility is to mark the people of God and uh, as we see in this passage, when the world opposes the church, that humility will become even more crucial to, uh, to our ministry. And Jesus is the one who, is, who said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Humble service is the path to greatness in God's kingdom because Christian ministry is about giving glory to God, not taking glory for people. And that means that people who are going to minister in God's name have to have the humility to get out of the way so that people can see Jesus. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so the question you have to ask in looking at, at Stephen is, do I have the humility to serve without the ego? Do I have the, the, the humility to give myself to, to needs around me that, that, that aren't part of my agenda or my program, or even they just don't seem to be part of the plan? Am I willing to give myself to serve, to help, and to be a part of what God is doing? Some of you know that I had the privilege of knowing a, a Japanese pastor who was famous in Japan for training leaders. In, in a country that has always struggled to move forward, to plant churches, to raise up leaders, his ministry stands out because he has, has trained up 
a, a significant number of uh, pastors and church planters from right within his own congregation. But he, he would always say, you always find your best leaders in the parking lot. Uh, this particular pastor served in uh, a, a part of Japan, uh, Yonezawa, in, uh, which had uh, notorious for its heavy winter uh, and heavy snowfalls. Average snowfall in Yonezawa was six meters. That's 10 times what we receive here in, uh, in, in Richmond Hill. And they had you know, uh, a congregation of 250 people, fairly decent sized parking lot, and they cleared it the old fashioned way with shovels. So on Sunday mornings, these people would not only clear out their own, their own uh, driveways, but then they would show up early enough at church so that before anyone else had arrived, they had cleared out this parking lot, again, six meters of snowfall on an average year. And he said, someone who has the dedication and the humility to show up with a shovel and to do that ministry faithfully and consistently is probably someone who has, the, has what it takes to serve in pastoral ministry. And, and he, would, he would just see that that was the natural path to leadership. It wasn't the only thing, wasn't the only requirement, but it was an essential part of, of the path that he, he saw God using to develop leaders. Are you someone who can serve without the ego? Are you someone who doesn't make it all about you? It's not about your preferences and how you want it done, but is it more about Christ and his mission and you responding humbly to the need? When the world opposes a church, service doesn't come with a lot of applause. There, there aren't a lot of pats on the back, at least from uh, the people who are opposed to that message. And if we are bringing our ego to the mission, then the mission falls apart and it's just our ego that remains. And so when the world opposes a church, humility is called for it, it, in every facet of uh, our ministry, whether it is ministry here in the church, whether you are speaking or serving uh, informally for Christ in your workplace, in your neighborhood, it has to come without the humility or the, the, the ego will be the only thing that stands out. Our pride will, will be what speaks to people. And so God's kind of leaders probably be carrying a shovel. They might have a diaper in their hand or a crying baby in our case. <laughs> there, there, there is a, a, a humility that accompanies those whom God desires to use. So the first myth is if I start at the bottom, I'll stay there. The second myth is this, if I'm nice, everyone will like me. We want to believe this because we all want to be liked. But we expect if we're trying to do something good, if we're volunteering to do it, everyone's going to be really appreciative of me. Everyone's going to really like me for what I've done. And yet when the world opposes the church, often the opposite is the case. We don't get the applause. We don't get the, the pat on the back. And so uh, if, uh, if I'm nice, everyone will like me is a myth that we need to unlearn in uh, the kind of culture that we find ourselves in today. Now, just think of how Stephen is described in this chapter. 
we already know he's the guy who puts himself, puts himself forward when they're looking for someone for a daily food distribution to widows. Like, he's a quality kind of guy already. Uh, here in verse 8, it says he is full of grace and power. Uh, so uh, it, it speaks to his character. Then the wonders and signs that he was, uh, he, he was uh, working, they were in service of people. They were helping people with, with needs that otherwise would have gone unmet. Finally, in verse 15, the people looking at him saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's very likely that some visible demonstration of the glory of God was shining in his face, uh, the reflection of God like you saw with Moses, like you saw with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Something like that is taking place. You can see something of, of, of God and his glory, even in his countenance. How could you not like this guy? <laughs> How could you not look at him and say, you know, I, I'm not crazy about what he's saying, but I, I have to be drawn to him. I have to respect him. I have to appreciate him. And yet, when the world opposes the church, that doesn't happen. That isn't the response of people. Jesus warned in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what Stephen experienced. Like, who thinks they're more godly than Stephen this morning? Like, nobody, right? Like, who, how, many, how many of you, your spouse told you, you know, I, see, I think I see the glory of God shining in your face this morning. What is that? None of us have had that, right? This is, this is a unique and special person. And he's getting it full force. If we could avoid people's displeasure... By just being nice, Stephen would have been the first one in line. But how, how was he treated? Well, in verse 9, the people he visited in the synagogue, instead of saying, oh, thank you for coming and bringing us this message of hope that's so encouraging. No, they debate with him and argue with him. They're disputing with him. Then in verse 11, when that doesn't work, they round up some people secretly to lie about him. Don't you love it when people do that? Is that great? They form like this posse of people who are just spreading lies. Then uh, they start stirring up opposition to him. They make him out to be this dangerous threat. And finally, in verse 12, they drag him, which, which is describing he is being seized. They have taken him by force, and they have dragged him before the Sanhedrin, uh, where they are going to have him interrogated before false witnesses. This is part of the package of the faithful Christian life. It's probably to, important to consider the charges that they make against him. Because maybe you're thinking, nice guy, but maybe he was just off in his theology. Maybe he was just, he was heretical. Maybe they should have uh, brought him down like this. So these are false witnesses, but they're probably still reacting to some of the things that Stephen did say, and it's important for us to kind of consider them. In verse 13 and 14, watch what they say. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. To be clear, 
neither Jesus nor Stephen ever said that they were going to destroy or that Jesus was going to destroy the holy place, the temple. But Jesus did predict that the temple would be destroyed. He, he predicted that that day of destruction would come and in AD 70, when the Roman siege took place, in fact, the temple was destroyed. With Jesus's death, there was no longer any need for sacrifice. And so a change in, in practice was inevitable. The, the temple was no longer going to be the center of uh, the, the existence of the people of God. And similarly, neither Stephen nor Jesus preached against the law. They weren't down on the law as, as some of the critics are uh, giving testimony to. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he also, though, initiated a new covenant. The old covenant had promised that a new covenant was coming. And Jesus, uh, before his death, initiated that new covenant and said it had arrived. The problem was there are people that wanted to hold on to the old. And they felt threatened by the new. Threatened their power and their status. Threatened their livelihood. And so they reacted and they felt with, they needed to respond to those threats and to do so forcefully and powerfully. And the problem is that same sense of being threatened by change, threatened by the gospel and the authority of Jesus Christ, that affects every culture and every generation. It hits them in different ways, but the, 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 the challenge is, is the same in all cultures. So we shouldn't assume, if we're nice, everyone will just like us. We can somehow come out feeling like everybody's hero when the savior that we're following was crucified before a watching world. Stephen, about as nice as they come, and people lied about him, they they formed, uh, fermented uh, slander against him. Uh, they dragged him before the court, brought false witnesses against him. And as we'll see, they eventually stoned and killed him. Now that's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us because we need to stop and say, most of us at least like to be liked. We, li we care about what people think about us. Often we care too much about what people think of us. There was some research done a little while back at Ohio State University, and I found this fascinating. It shocked the research team. So what they were trying to do was to find out what do university students crave the most? And I'm probably thinking what you're, what's going through your mind right now. University students crave pizza, right? They like beer. They like coffee. They like hanging out with friends. They like sleeping in on Saturday mornings. They like, uh, they like all kinds of, of things. But interestingly, out of all of those things and the things that the researchers thought would be at the top of the list of things that they crave, above food, above friends, about, above hanging out, above beer, above, above coffee, even above sex, the thing that they craved the most was compliments. Anything that would lift their self-esteem was top of the list as most desired, most wanted, most craved. 
They wanted someone to praise them. They wanted someone to affirm them. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, oh, those terrible people, how could they think like that? I think, like, I think that probably many of us would testify to the exact same feelings. We, we are a people who, we want people to like us. We want people to accept us. But that's going to cause problems for us if we are craving the acceptance of people instead of God and God's values and the world's values or the values of the people that we're craving that affirmation from are in conflict. And guess what? More and more in our world today, those values are in conflict, right? Now, people react to this with two extremes. There are Christians who hear that and say, yeah, I think that's true. And they just cave on their convictions to do what they need to do and say what they need to say in order for people to like them. That's one extreme. The other extreme is people become cynical and foolish and say, well, it doesn't matter how we act. They just, they, they hate us anyway. And they will act with reckless abandon and, and, there's probably, uh, there's probably things to fault in both of those responses. Jesus said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Uh, being wise as serpents means you think before you speak. You might need a little strategy. Uh, being wise as serpents means we need to ask whether we're actually standing for Jesus or standing for our preferences. I suspect that Stephen probably wasn't crazy about the Roman government. Probably wasn't all that thrilled about Roman taxation. I suspect that Stephen uh, just wasn't into Roman rule and a host of other issues. But Stephen took his stand on Jesus Christ and on Jesus Christ alone. That's, where, that's what brought his death. And I think it's important to, to, to maintain that distinction, distinction and to be wise as we operate in a world that is opposed to us. Then being innocent in doves means we make, need to make sure that it's Jesus and not us that people take issue with. It, it does no good for us if it is our character that people are, are grading against. Remember, Stephen, even as he was receiving all of this uh, negative blowback. He was full of grace. His opponents could see the visible glory of God in his face. And if the world is going to oppose us, if the world is going to oppose the church, we don't want it to be because we were rude or selfish or ignorant or insensitive. Let it be for Christ and for Christ alone. Godliness still matters. We still play the dove even when the world comes at us like a hawk. So we've said if we start at the bottom, I'll stay there, is a myth. That uh, when the world is hostile and in opposition to the church, it calls for our humility. We've also said that if I'm nice, everyone will like me, is, a, is another myth. If we're going to follow Jesus, then we are going to receive some of the persecution that he, he, he felt himself. But some of you are already thinking ahead. You know that Stephen was killed for his faith. And you might be thinking, well, I'm going to just, I'm going with a different strategy. 
um, as I look at his life, he seems to be someone that I don't want to learn from. I, I want to go in a different direction. And maybe that different direction for you is go with the crowd and avoid the hassle. Or maybe the dire different direction for you is go militant and fight fire with fire. Those are kind of the options that, that people will turn to. In either case, you're seeing Stephen as a warning, not as an example. And I'm, I am convinced that Stephen is presented to us here as an example. I believe he was an example to the early church. And I believe Luke has recorded his life and response as an example to us. How do we respond when the world opposes a church? And so uh, this idea that Stephen was a warning, not an example, is actually the final myth that this passage confronts. And the myth is this. If I'm canceled, it'll all be for nothing. We assume losing our position, losing our status, losing our role, or even losing our life means it was a big waste of time. And nothing good could have possibly come of that. But... We follow a savior who shaped eternity through his death. And that means we see life differently than the world around us. We're the people that see the opportunities in our losses. And so if I'm canceled, it'll all be for nothing is a myth. And we need to explode that myth and unlearn it. And uh, we do so in today's passage. Now, Stephen had one last sermon, sermon that he delivered before his death, and we will look at that uh, at a, at a, at a future, uh, in a future series. But when that sermon was over, the response was really enthusiastic. It just wasn't at all positive enthusiastic. There was a different kind of enthusiasm in the room. Acts chapter 7, verses 57 to 58 says, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, if you're reading that for the first time, you're probably thinking, whoa, like, where's the angel that bust, bust the apostles out of the prison a couple weeks ago? Like, where was God when this was happening? Surely that couldn't be part of God's plan. And yet... Surely that was part of God's plan. Surely God did allow this and had a good plan for it. If you're thinking and looking at Stephen's life and thinking, what a waste, then you're unprepared to cope for life in a world where the world opposes the church. I'm convinced Stephen's death was a crucial part of what God did to train the church and to prepare them for what would follow. And I believe it helped to shape the early church as we know it today. I say that because Stephen taught the church how to die like Jesus. And uh, f f follow with me as we, as we kind of look through exactly what was taking place here. If after this morning's message, you started pelting me with rocks, my immediate reaction would not be to think happy thoughts about you. I, I, I would naturally feel anger and, and frustration and hatred welling up within me. That, that those feelings of, of anger would, would, would come over me. 
naturally speaking. But if that was my response to you, if that was our response to the world, then we would deny everything we teach about the force of Christ's forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit. That all that would have been display, on display in that moment would have been my own selfish gut reaction and nothing of the Spirit. Look at verse 59 of chapter 7. It says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He goes down with his eyes on Jesus and a prayer on his lips. That's, that's how I want to die. That's how I want to live my life, focused on Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the worst that this world could throw at me. A prayer on my lips and my eyes focused on Jesus. Now look at verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now we know where he got those words because he had seen Jesus die. And, and so we are the people who are to be transformed by what Jesus accomplished on the, Christ, on the cross for us. But here in Stephen's life, we see, no, this wasn't just a Jesus thing. I think this is how his followers are to respond as well. And we see in his life the, this response. Do you think that it impacted the hearts and lives of the people that had just thrown those rocks? Or the people with the rocks in their hands? To see this person, his face like an angel, focusing on Jesus Christ and praying for their forgiveness. I, I think if I was there and one of those people holding the rocks, I think that prayer would haunt me for the rest of my life. I don't think I could ever get that on my head. Where does that come from? Who, who, whose side am I standing on? If I am pelting someone with rocks who is praying for my forgiveness, what's going on there? And, and this is not only the, the way that the, that the opponents of Jesus Christ were affected. The early church learned from that example as well. And as a believer, I look at that and think, that's the way I want to go down. That's the way that I want to be remembered by my enemies. I want, to, I want them to remember the grace and forgiveness that was somehow supernaturally displayed in my life that they don't have a reason, they don't have an explanation for. I, I, want, to be, I, I want to be that person who faces my dying moments as, as Stephen did, full of grace, full of Jesus, full of prayer. And, and it's this picture for us. Now, we know that Stephen's death did impact people. We know that it, 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 it affected and impacted the early church because they, they were famous for how its people died. The early church spread and grew because of how the Christians died. The word that we have for martyr is just the Greek word witness. Because so often as Christians were being killed for their faith, they were graciously and powerfully giving testimony to Jesus Christ. And so eventually the word for martyr and the word for witness just kind of crossed over and became synonymous with one another. 
It's how this church spread. And you've experienced this in your own life. You know that when, if you have had anyone close to you who has died but done so with the power of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of hope, full of courage, full of conviction, you know that their dying has impacted you and how you live more than any of my sermons. It changes you. And Stephen's death changed the church. He taught them how to die. He taught them how to face death like Jesus. Christianity took root all over the Roman Empire because of how the Christians died, and it started with Stephen. And obviously, Stephen started with Jesus. They kept on going going back to him. But Stephen just didn't teach the church how to die like Jesus. He also showed them how to testify to Jesus, to speak and to proclaim him under pressure. He knew that his words could result in big consequences. It was going to be more than just getting benched from the team. It was going to mean more than a hockey contract on the line. But he spoke, and he spoke powerfully. He spoke boldly, and he continued to point to Christ no matter what the consequences might have been. With his death, there came great persecution. The entire church on, in Jerusalem was served notice because there, there was uh, great persecution that came upon them, and they fled. They, they, they were forced out of Jerusalem and spread all over the Roman Empire. But listen to what eight, Acts 8 verse 4 says of the Christians hunted down by the religious authorities. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were chased out of Jerusalem, but they proclaimed the word wherever they went. They, they went out. You would think if, they're, if you're being hunted down by authorities and tra- chased out of your town, you're going to do so secretly and quietly and try to go under the radar and make sure nobody finds out. No, they just kept on proclaiming their message. And so the church expanded and grew, continued to grow and spread wherever these Christians went. That's how the Roman Empire was influenced the way it was. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist, and I don't think that we're there yet. But I, I think there's no question that the culture finds Christianity more and more problematic. It used to be that people could reject Christianity as the solution but we're not there anymore. Now Christianity is seen as an essential part of the problem. And, and that is a, a significant shift that's taken place. What will you do when you face your Ivan Provorov moment? How do you respond? What will you bring to that moment? I want to encourage you to, uh, to, to go back to Stephen. When, when you are asked to respond to employers, to respond to friends, to neighbors, maybe family members who find your faith unacceptable, to go back to Stephen and to learn and unlearn some of the myths that would otherwise lead us down the wrong, wrong path in our response to this world. Start with not believing the myth that says, if I start at the bottom... I'll end there. 
to, to recognize that, that this is an age and a time more than ever that calls for our humility. Take up the shovel or the diaper or the crying baby and it, leave the ego and the pride behind because when the world opposes the church, it is that pride and ego will get in the way of everything else that we're trying to communicate. Let's take the position of humility. Second, don't believe the myth that says, if I'm nice, everyone will like me. If, we're dis- if we are living our lives for people's applause, then we are not going to receive the uh, applause and acceptance of heaven. It, it, if it's for people's applause, it's not for Jesus. And Jesus said, if I faced it, you will face it. If I went through this, you better be prepared to go through it yourself. But we do so wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Finally, don't believe the myth that says, if I'm canceled, it'll all be for nothing. How you lose says more about your faith than how you win. How you die says more about your faith than how you lived. We are the people who follow a savior who redirected the course of history through his death. And so we need to look at our losses as opportunities. We look at our deaths as displays of our hope, our faith, and our conviction. Jesus died for us, and following him means being willing to die for him in whatever form that might take in our lives. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus the way Stephen did. Let's center our message on Jesus and not us and our stuff. Even when the world opposes a church, he's just what the world needs. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the examples that you have given us in the word of God. Thank you for Stephen who showed us the way forward. And thank you for the way that Stephen had his eyes on Jesus and imitated him not only in his life, but also in his death. The fact is, we don't like it when people don't like us. But your approval is worth more than this world could ever give. So help us to seek it. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to embrace humility. And remind us often of how much Jesus gave up for us. So we can stand when our faith causes us to give up things for him. In Jesus' name, amen.